Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 553 with Jonah Berger. Jonah is discussing what are the biggest obstacles to persuading successfully and how can you overcome them? So you'll learn one, why persuasive arguments don't work and what does. Two, a simple technique to win over those stubborn naysayers. And three, how to introduce big changes with minimal resistance. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can expand your episode notes or description, your podcast app player of choice, and tap on over that way. But if those links aren't working in your particular podcast app player, you can visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep553 to reach that there. Now, here's Jonah's story. Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the internationally best-selling author of Contagious, Invisible Influence, and The Catalyst. Dr. Berger is a world-renowned expert on change, word of mouth, influence, consumer behavior, and how products, ideas, and behaviors catch on. He's published over 50 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches Wharton's highest-rated online course, and has been featured in popular outlets, including the New York Times and Harvard Business Review. He's keynoted hundreds of events and often consults for organizations, including Google, Apple, Nike, and the Gates Foundation. Big thanks to Jonah for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Jonah. Jonah, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to dig into your wisdom. You've been on the list for a long time. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. So good to have you here. I'd love to just kick us off by saying, so you've been doing a lot of research and influence and change. And can you maybe tell us what's some of like the most common things that people want change that comes up again and again and again. It's almost like trite <laughs> for you by now. I think everyone has something they want to change. Employees always seem to want to change their boss's mind. Leaders want to transform organizations. Uh, marketing and sales want to change the customer or the client's mind. Startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. I think we all have something that we want to change. People talk about changing their spouse's mind or their kid's behavior. So I think these things come up again and again. What I found most interesting is that we tend to take a particular approach that often doesn't work. 
So when we did some of our own research, for example, we asked people to write down what's something you want to change and what have you tried to do to change it. Almost 100% of the time, 99% of the time, they write down some version of, of what I'd call pushing. And that is kind of adding more pressure, more reasons, more information. If it's the boss, oh, let me just send one more email. If it's a client, let me make one more phone call. If it's my spouse, let me just tell them one more time why I think what I'm suggesting is, is the right way to go. And it's clear why we think this is a good approach, right? In the physical world, if we want to move something, we push it, right? If you're sitting in a room and there's a chair and you want the chair to go somewhere, you push the chair in the direction you want it to go. But the problem with people is they aren't physical objects. Unlike objects that move when we push them, when we push people, they push back. And so the question really of this new book that I've been working on is, well, is there a different way? Is there a better way to change minds and, and organizations? Well, do tell. What is the better way? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a neat analogy to be made with chemistry. And so uh, in, in chemistry, there's sort of this special set of substances that make change happen faster and easier. They're called catalysts, but they work in a very particular way. They don't add temperature. They don't add pressure, which is usually what things in chemistry do to change things. They remove the barriers to change. They basically make the same amount of change happen with less work. And so that's really what I find quite interesting about the social world as well. Too often we say, what could I do to get someone to change? Rather than taking a very subtle but important shift and saying, well, why hasn't that person changed already? What's preventing? What are the barriers mm -hmm. that are mitigating or, or hindering change, that friction, as you said, and how can I remove those barriers? And so that's what the book is really all about. It's about finding those barriers, those things that are getting in the way and, and how to get rid of them. Okay, certainly. And so then let's hear in terms of frequent examples of, of, of resistance, friction, barriers, obstacles. What's the kind of stuff that gets in the way for professionals looking to make a change at work, either in themselves or, or, or with their boss or colleague? What are some of those repeated obstacles? Yeah. And I love thinking about these obstacles as parking brakes. The reason why, you know, when we get in our car, we often have this problem, right? We get in our car, we're sitting on an incline or whatever. We want to get it to go. We turn the key ignition, put our foot on the gas. If it doesn't go, we think we need more gas. Uh, we rarely, though, until we think mm -hmm. about it, end up checking that parking brake. Oh, I like that. Right? And so sometimes it's the parking brake that's along the way. And so what are those parking brakes or, or obstacles? And so in the book, I talk about five. I talk about reactance, endowment, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. Those I found across my research are some of the, the five most common benefits. And they have the nice uh, side benefit of when you put them in order, they actually spell a word, mm -hmm. which is reduce. It was no accident, Joan, I'm sure. Yeah, it was no accident. No, <laughs> And honestly, actually, if I could, I'd, I'd change the order around. I'd end up with like the E-U-R-D-C uh -huh. framework, which doesn't spell anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it would just be confusing if, if we did it that way. But I think it's a nice way to organize that information. And that's what catalysts do, right? They don't push harder. They reduce those barriers. They figure out what those obstacles are and, and how to mitigate them. Well, so let's dig into each of them. Can you maybe define the five of them and then we'll sort of dig into noteworthy ones? Yeah, well, let's, let's pick one to start. So let's say reactance. And I think this is something that everyone listening has experienced in one way, shape or form, whether it's in their professional or personal life. And the idea here very simply is when we try to get people to do something, when we try to persuade them, they push back. A bunch of very nice research shows that people essentially have an ingrained anti-persuasion system, almost like a, an anti-missile defense system or radar mm -hmm. that is going around that says, hey, you know, when I sense that someone's trying to convince me of something, someone's trying to change my mind, my defense system goes up. 
Even if it's for our good or it would be fun. You're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I find this most funny with exactly what you said. Even if it's something I already want to do, this happens a lot in our personal lives, right? Our spouse, for example, might say, well, I think we should do this. And even if it's something we already wanted to do, we have to stop ourselves from saying no, because we want to feel like we made the choice. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what reactance is about, right? We want to feel like we're in control. We're in the driver's seat. And so if we don't feel uh, like we're in control or we don't feel like we're in the driver's seat, we put push back against that message. That radar goes up and we either avoid or ignore something or even worse, we counter-argue. And, and I think counter-arguing is the worst because you don't know when someone's counter-arguing. Often they're sitting there, they're listening to you, but they're not actually listening. They're sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't want to do what you suggested. And so in terms of how to solve this challenge, there are a few different ways. But one I often like to talk about is to do something called providing a menu. And the notion, the, the intuition here is very simple. When we give people one thing that we're recommending, they, as, as we just talked about, often sit there thinking about all the reasons why it's a bad idea. So if our spouse, for example, says, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? You say, oh, let's go watch a movie. They go, oh, but it's such a nice day outside. Or, oh, we went to the movies last week. Or, oh, whatever it is. They think about all the reasons why it's a bad idea. And so what good consultants often do is they provide what's called a menu, essentially multiple options rather than just one. And what that really cleverly does is that shifts the job of the listener. Right, and, and let's say uh, a consultant's presenting a solution, and they're presenting it to a client. If they just present one option, the client sits there going, "Think about all the reasons why it won't work. It'll be too expensive. It'll be hard to implement. My staff won't like it. Blah 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 blah. All the reasons why it won't work." If instead you present two options, at least two or three, maybe even a couple more, it shifts the role of the listener. Because rather than thinking about all the reasons they don't like what you're suggesting, they're instead sitting there thinking which of them they like the best, (laughs) which of those two options, three options they like the best, which is going to lead them, not surprisingly, to be much more likely to pick one at the end of the day. And so I like calling it providing a menu because you're not giving infinite choices. You're giving a limited set and you're guiding that decision. Well, it's so funny because it takes so much more work to to go off the menu. I'm thinking this is triggering all sorts of things. Like, so I've got a two-year-old at home and so sometimes he doesn't want to put a shirt on after he wakes (laughs) up. And so it's like, hey, do you want the the blue one or the purple one? And then it was like, purple. So, or I was at a, um, I was at a hotel with a continental breakfast this weekend and I just wasn't thrilled with any of the options. So I was, I was hoping for those little egg things, but uh, they, they, they weren't there. You know, there was... Just about all carbs, no protein. Yeah. But I had like, you know, six options. And so I just sort of stood there displeased for <laughs> like three minutes. I the people probably wondering what I was doing. Yeah. I was like, ah, no, no, no. And, and then I finally just sort of, okay, I guess I'm going to do this because I don't want to truck it out. Yeah, in the snowy weather. Oh, exactly. I'll eat what's here? Yeah, but I mean, talking about kids, I mean, it's the same idea, right? And and I, I have a young one at, at home myself, and it's the same thing, right? When you ask kids to do something, they go no. Uh, you know, uh, put this away. No. Do you want to wear this? No. They, they're like so used to saying no. But if you give them two options, suddenly they got a chance to choose. And notice you're not giving them 15 options, right? Because if you gave them 15 options, they wouldn't make a choice. They'd feel overwhelmed. They'd go do something else. You know, when you walk into a restaurant, uh, let's say you go to a Chinese restaurant, they don't say, okay, you know, which of the 60 options of world cuisines would you like? They say, no, here's a small set of options that are available, but you get to pick. And I think that same thing is useful whether you're trying to convince a client 
or whether you're trying to convince a boss, right? You want that boss to do something. Don't say, hey, boss, I think we should do this. Say, hey, boss, I think these are two really great options for us. Which do you like better? Now, the boss may not pick either, but because they felt like they're in control, they're more likely to pick one than they would have been otherwise. And I think that's particularly excellent when it's sort of like the the help me prioritize conversation. Like, you know, you've made 40 requests of me and yes. it's in fact impossible for all of those things to happen within the timeline you'd like them to happen. So what do you think of, of on this list is, is the most important? And so that goes across, uh, I think, a lot better. I've been on the receiving yeah. end of this than, um, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I can't do that. It's like, well, what? It's like, no, no, yeah. well, you, you pick which of these things. You picked? Yeah. But as you're pointing out, and that's actually an, another thing I talk about a little bit in this chapter, is what that does is it gets the boss to commit to the conclusion, right? When you make statements, someone gets to sit there going, okay, do I agree with that statement or not? But when you ask questions, suddenly it sh again shifts their role. They're saying what they think is the most important. They're saying which of the things you should prioritize. They've put a stake in the ground. And so if you come back later and you do that thing, it's harder for them to disagree. Somebody was talking about this in the context of a startup they were working at where the boss wanted everyone to work the weekend. No one wants to mm -hmm. work the weekend, right? right? So instead, in a meeting, the boss said, okay, what kind of company do you want to be? Do you want to be a good company or a great company? Now, we all know how everyone answers that question. They don't say, oh, we want to be a good company. They say, we want to be a great company. And after everyone says that, they put that stake in the ground. They've committed to the conclusion. Then the boss says, okay, well, to be a great company, we've got to put in some long hours. But because people have committed to it, because you asked them a question rather than telling them what to do, they're much more likely to do the work to reach that conclusion. Okay, lovely. So then that covers the, the reactants, I guess. Are, are we automatically react to, I don't care to be persuaded, but uh, I do care to, to make some choices. So then how about the endowment? Sure, yeah. I think endowment, the best way to talk about is to share the common intuition we often have, which is we tend to become attached to things we're already doing. So unlike if you're trying to get someone who's never done something to do something, when you're trying to get people to switch, to go from one thing to something else, they're not only about how much they value that new thing and how much they want to do it, but how reticent they are to give up the old one. So some research on home buying, for example, shows that the longer someone's lived in a home, the more they value that place above market price, right? They've spent a long time in it. They have their memories attached to it. Right. They're unwilling to, to get rid of it. Same thing if you're asking people to buy something. So they do great research, for example, on what's called the endowment effect, where the name of the chapter comes from, where they ask people, say, hey, you know, imagine I give you this mug. I check it out this mug. It can hold coffee or tea. You like it. Great. Uh, how much would you be willing to sell it for? And they ask another set of people to say, hey, here's this wonderful mug. It holds coffee and tea, etc. How much would you be willing to buy it from someone else for? And those prices, those amounts should be exactly the same. Whether you're buying mm -hmm. that coffee mug or selling that coffee mug, the value of it should be the same. But people's valuation of it changes based on whether they own it or not. If it's your mug, if it's yours, you're less willing to let it go. You have a two times often higher valuation than people that don't have it already because it's yours. And obviously, this is a problem because you're not only asking people when you're asking them to change to do something new, you ask them to give up something old that they probably value very highly. Oh, that's good. And this also reminds me of the cognitive bias, the IKEA effect in terms of I I've poured my time into assembling this piece of furniture. Therefore, you know, if I were to sell it, it needs to fetch a, a hefty rate because I'm invested into that. And, and so I said, well, no, it's just kind of a cheap piece of furniture. <laughs> you know, it's, you're not going to get a, a hefty rate. For, it's not world-class craftsmanship or anything. So, 
Okay, so there we go. That's that's endowment. It's there. What do we do with it? Yeah, and so I think the thing there I've found is that we have to make people realize that doing nothing isn't costless. So I think we have this notion that what I'm doing already is free. Their costs of doing a new thing, their switching costs, which hopefully we'll get to in a couple minutes. But we think the existing thing is in some sense free. It's not going to cost me anything to keep doing the same thing I'm doing. But that often isn't the case. There often are costs to doing something that we don't realize. So there's a nice study, for example, that talks about which hurts people more, which causes more pain, a minor injury or a major one. And everybody, when they think about it, will go, oh, of course, a major injury causes more pain, right? So if I break my elbow, that's going to hurt me a lot more than a sprain. Uh, A headache is not going to hurt as much as a heart attack, for example. But what people don't realize is when something really bad happens, we often take measures to fix that bad thing. Something is Mm -hmm. terrible. You know, we have a, we break our arm, for example. We're not just going to sit around. We're going to go to the hospital. We're going to get it set. We're going to get it fixed. Whereas for a minor sprain, we often don't fix it. And so we often don't address those things and they end up causing more pain over the lifespan overall because they don't go above uh, our threshold. And so the challenge then is for, for change agents is make people realize it's not costless, that doing what you've done before mm-hmm. isn't costless. There's a, a great person from IT that I talked about, I talked to in the, in the book that did a version of what I'll call burning the ships. So there's this old famous story where an explorer wants to get his men to you know, travel inland to do this dangerous thing in Mexico. They don't want to go. So what he does, is he takes the old option off the table. He basically says, look, if the ships are still around, they can still go home. So I'm going to burn the ships. Once the ships are gone, once the status quo has disappeared, they've got to go with me. They've got to change and, and do the new thing. And so that may seem really drastic, burning the ships. But this IT guy did a, a version of it. He was trying to get everyone to upgrade. So uh, upgrade to new software version, get rid of their old... Oh, you got to. Those hackers, they're after you. They're after you. Yeah, I still use Windows (laughs) 7, whatever it is, right? It's dangerous for the network. Yeah, can't have that. Or, you know, someone's on that old version of their PC they don't want to get rid of Mm because they've got that status quo bias. It's, It's theirs. And so what he did was interesting. So rather than saying, hey, let me tell you how great the new thing is, he surfaced the cost of inaction. He made people realize more that doing nothing isn't isn't free. He sent out this note. People weren't upgrading the new system. So he sent out this note and said, look, you don't have to upgrade. But just so you know, we can't support the old system anymore. It's dangerous to the network. It takes too much time. You can keep using it. But after a certain point, if you have a problem, we're not going to fix it. Right? He didn't say, hey, look, you have to switch. Mm-hmm. But he didn't allow that cost of an action to remain dormant. He really surfaced it. He allowed people to see it. And so in some sense, he didn't take the old option off the table. He didn't throw their PC out the window. He didn't truly burn the ships. He just made people realize that sticking with those old way of doing things might be more costly than they might think, which encourages them to be more willing to do something new. But you know, I, I really dig that. And, and I've recently applied that in terms of there's all these little tasks that, uh, you know, I'm big on outsourcing and, and I've, I think I've gotten pretty good at it. But, you know, there, there's some like three minute tasks that uh, just like, ah, oh, that's probably a lot of effort to, you know, train folks on how to do that. So I'll just, I'll just keep doing that. But then when I really hunker down. It's like, okay, so what is this going to amount to over the yes. next five years of doing yes. this three minutes? It's just like, and I think about all those hours and it's like, okay, well, that's a few like vacation days. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's worth taking an hour or two to share, hey, this is how you make invoices or, or, or whatever the thing may be so that I can I can get that going as you show that the, the cost of doing nothing is significant. 
Yeah. And I, I love that example that you shared because the cost is significant over time, but it's not initially. Yeah. Right. Like you're sitting there going, it's only three minutes. But as you said, three minutes over time adds up to vacation days. But there's always an initial cost of action. To train that person requires a couple hours. And if the cost seems bigger than the immediate benefit, we don't do it. And it's really encouraging people to say, look, over time, you know, over time, that sprain, that elbow sprain is going to hurt a lot. You might want to go see a doctor and get it fixed. Really adding it up over time forces people to realize that it's not actually costless. I dig it. Well, let's keep it going. Tell us about distance, Jonah. Sure. So distance is the notion that if we ask for too much, if we ask for something or even give people information, it's too far from where they are at the moment, they tend to ignore us or they tend to sort of push back against what we're suggesting. And so this might sound a little bit like reactance, but in reactance, we're really trying to persuade someone. Even if we just give people information, sometimes they don't listen. And so a great domain to think about this in is politics. It's the new reality show. It's called America. What is happening in politics? But people don't get along with with the other side. And many people have talked about filter bubbles and you get access to biased information and all these different things. But one solution is, hey, if we just learned about the other side, if we just connected with people on the other side, then we'd be more moderate. We'd come around. And so uh, the sociologist from Duke actually tested this. So he said, look, I'm going to take people on Twitter. I'm going to pay them a little bit of money to follow a bot for a month. And that bot is going to be on the opposite side of the political spectrum as them. It's exactly what all the commentators and pundits have said. Look, if we just reach across the aisle, just talk to a couple uh, Republicans, if you're a Democrat, vice versa, if you're a Republican, that'll make everybody more moderate. So he said, look, if we just give people information, nobody's trying to convince anyone, just give them information about what the other side thinks, hopefully that'll make them more moderate. And, and you can think about this in a variety of other contexts as well, right? You know, if I just give that boss more information about what I want, if I give the client more information, they should listen. And, and the hope was simply that information about the other side would move people to the middle. But that's not, unfortunately, what he found. It wasn't that it moved people to the middle, and it wasn't even that it had no effect. Giving people information about what the other side thought actually pushed them in the opposite direction. It backfired. Oh, it's like those jerks are, you know, let's villainize them more for how wrong they are. <laughs> in some sense, right. It made Republicans become more conservative. It made it liberals move in the opposite direction as well. And essentially, why is it was too far from where people are at the moment? Research shows that we have sort of a latitude of acceptance or a zone of acceptance around our beliefs or our attitudes. Sure, we believe mm. a certain thing, but we're willing to move a few yards in another direction. Think about a football field, right? We move five or 10 yards in one direction, maybe five or 10 in another, but we won't go completely on the other side of the field because on the other side of the field is that region of rejection, right? It's that set of opinions or information or beliefs that we are unwilling even to consider, right? We're unwilling to pay attention to them. And this is sort of ideas of the confirmation bias. And even when we do pay attention to them, we discount it or we don't believe it because it's too far from where we are. And so the question then really is how can we shrink that distance, make it not seem so far away from where people are at the moment? Well, okay. So let's get an example here. Boy, what's something that people can really, okay. How about, hey, how about abortion? All right. <laughs> There's some distance. So, you know, one side could say, hey, this is a human life and you're murdering it and that's, or him or her, that's not cool. And the other side would say, no, you're enslaving women. You're trying to bring them back to the, the dark ages and, and which they're subservient to men. This is unjust. Okay. So we got a whole lot of distance. I'm throwing you in the deep end, Jonah. You are. If one side or the other is trying to, to gain some ground, how might we present things to have uh, less distance? Yeah. So I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to take an easy out to beginning and then we'll work our way back around to abortion. Oh, sure. So I would say a 
first place to start is to do what I'll call asking for less. And so I think an easy way to think about this is, is a doctor that I was talking to. So, you know, often when we want people to change, we ask for too much. We, the information's too far away. In the abortion case, for example, we want someone to go from pro-choice to pro-life right away. We want people to switch sides, one to the other, right, right away. We want big change to happen right away. And the doctor was actually dealing with something similar. She, she wanted, she had this truck driver she was working with that was morbidly obese. So he was like 100 pounds uh, or more overweight. Part of the reason why is he was drinking three liters uh, of Mountain Dew a day. Oh, man. So he'd be in that truck cab all day long. He'd buy Mountain Dew. <laughs> got to stay awake. Yeah. <laughs> got to stay awake. Got to have something to drink. So he was drinking three liters of Mountain Dew. And so what's our knee-jerk reaction in that situation? That's disgusting. You got to stop that now. <laughs> Don't drink any more Mountain Dew. Right. Yeah. Uh, we want someone to exercise. We exercise every day. We want someone to switch from one side of the field to the other, which is great for us, but is probably not going to work for them. Right. If you're talking to a guy that's drinking three liters of Mountain Dew a day, telling him to quit cold turkey is probably going to fail. Now, and so she tried something else instead. Rather than asking him to quit cold turkey, she said, hey, you're drinking three liters of Mountain Dew a day. You can keep drinking some Mountain Dew, but drink two instead of three and take one of those empty bottles and fill it up with water. He grumbled. He didn't want to do it, obviously. He wasn't interested in moving at all, but he was willing to try it. He lost a little weight. He came back next time. She said, okay, great. Now you're at two. Move to one. Came back a few months later, had made it to one. Then she said, great. Eventually moved to zero. And by using this sort of stepwise function, not asking for all at once, but asking for less and then asking for more, she was able to get him to change, right? And so asking for less isn't about saying, hey, I'm only going to ask for less. It's about starting with less and then asking for more, moving people five yards down the field and then moving them another five yards. If you talk to mm -hmm. product designers, they, they often call this uh, something like stepping stones. So you're introducing a new version of a product or a new version of a service. I, a few years ago, was working with uh, Facebook to introduce a new hardware project, uh, and they were dealing with exactly this, right? They were saying, okay, we're going to introduce something. It's very different from what people are used to. How can we introduce this new thing? If it's too different, they're going to say, no, they, they don't want to do it. And so what we ended up doing instead is rather than going for the full thing right away, asking people to move to that completely new thing, let's pick something that's just a little bit from where they are currently, introduce that version. Then once people have gotten used to it, move to the next version and move to the next one. And so in some sense, it's almost like I call it stepping stones because it's like a river, right? When mm -hmm. you ask them to change, it's like a big river. They don't want to cross from one side to the other. It's too far. I'm going to get wet. I don't want to do it. So instead you say, okay, well, just jump to this little stone and then jump to this next stone and then jump to this next stone and you jump a few times and, and you're across to the other side. And so rather than asking for too much right away, start by asking for less, chunk that change and then ask, ask for more. Well, that's handy. And so then in the challenging example, I threw your way with, oh, with abortion, yes. it, it might be just a matter of a stepping stone might be not so much changing your view, but just accepting that the other side is not evil and trying to commit these atrocities against women or or tiny babies, but rather that they are mistaken. Yes. Or they have a different perspective than and that's some distance, you know, yes. that, that you've you've reduced. You're still quite a distance away, but it's something. Yeah. There's a great Heineken ad that does something exactly like what you're suggesting, where they take people that completely disagree 
and they have them have a conversation. So they take, for example, a feminist and someone who hates feminism. They take someone who hates transgender people and someone who's transgendered and so on, you know, people that really disagree. And what they do is they have them essentially build a bar. They get together, they go through a variety of activities, they build a bar. And at the end, they show them a video of the other person and the other person saying all the things that they believe. So, you know, the feminist says, oh, women are important. And the, you know, feminist hater says, oh, uh, you know, women's job is at the home. And, you know, and they see what the other person is. And then they say, okay, now that you know who this person is, do you still want to be friends with them? And I think what that does, it's slightly different than asking for less. What it does is it switches the field, right? Rather than starting with something like abortion, where two sides are dug in on opposite sides of the field and they're mm-hmm. unlikely to agree and move, it switches the field to a dimension where they're more similar in, in the first place. We both like drinking beer. We both like drinking beer, right? We both <laughs> yeah. hung out. We both care about our families. We both care about America being a great country or in an organizational context, right? Sure, you might not want to do what I want, but we both want the company to succeed. I think a good way to think about it, you know, imagine you're sitting in front of graph paper, right? You can draw that field on the x-axis. There's one end zone. There's another end zone. You can make the tick marks along the way. But if at the 50-yard line, you draw a vertical line, right, there's a y-axis, which is another dimension where you might actually actually have a lot in common, right? Even Mm -hmm. if you're on different ends of the x-axis, you're actually at the same point on the y-axis, right? You're exactly in the middle. And so by switching that field, by starting with common ground, starting with something we have in common, a place where we don't disagree, and using that to then eventually build around to that place where there's more disagreement, we're going to be more successful. Because now you've humanized the person, right? Mm -hmm. You're not just oh, this faceless person who believes something I don't believe, we have a little bit in common. We both care about our families. We realize, you know, we have emotional connections to the things we love. I'm going to see you more as a human. You're going to see me as more as a human. And then we're more likely to be persuaded at the end of the day. Okay, I dig it. So... Yo, Jonah, let's just keep it going. Uncertainty, lay on us. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked a little bit about switching costs before, but just to make that really concrete, if I'm asking uh, an organization to change company culture, there's some cost to doing that, right? There's an incentive structure that was, and now there's a new one. When I ask a customer to buy a new project, they have to spend money or time or energy to install that new thing or get that new thing. Those are costs that often prevent change from happening. The old thing seems cheap, the new thing seems costly. But the other problem with new things is that they have more uncertainty associated with them, right? Think about a new phone, for example. Not only does you have to pay money to get that new phone, but when do you have to pay the cost and when do you get the benefits? Well, the costs are up front. I have to pay the money for that phone now. I have to go to AT&T and Verizon and switch my thing and do this and do that and get all my information switched over. So the costs are now and the benefits are later. Yes, it might be faster and lighter and have a better camera, but I'm not going to get those until later. And those benefits are also uncertain. Sure, you know, this new way of doing company culture might be better. Sure, this new project you're suggesting might make us more money, but I don't know if it's going to. And if I don't know, why am I going to be willing to switch? And and that's what I call the cost-benefit timing gap. Costs Mm -hmm. are certain and they're upfront. Benefits are are uncertain uh, and they're later. And people don't like uncertainty. Right? You think about the last time you were wondering if you were going to be late for a meeting, for example. So your flight is late or you're stuck in a car in traffic and you're worried about missing this meeting. Right? You're so anxious. You don't know what you're going to do. You feel terrible. Right? You hate this concern about missing the meeting. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the worst thing that can happen is missing the meeting. And so if you know that you're going to miss that meeting, you should feel what? You should feel worse right? because that's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. But often notice what happens. Right? We figure out we're going to miss that meeting and then what ends up happening? You're relieved. We actually feel good. Relief. 
we feel better. It's like, okay, what am I going to do now? I'm going to communicate something to somebody and make it up somehow. Yeah. Now that I know I'm going to solve it. And so in some sense, it's not just missing the meeting that's bad. It's, it's that uncertainty. And so in a, in a product context, in a sales context, an organizational context, uncertainty often leads us to hit the pause button. We don't know whether the new thing is going to be better or worse. And given we don't know, it's safest to do nothing, right? Which is great for the status quo, which is great for what we're doing already, which is, but it's terrible for, for new things. And so to really then get people to overcome that uncertainty, that anxiety, we have to make it easier for them to experience the value of that new thing. I'm with you. And I think that this connects so much in terms of, I'm thinking about how people try to sell me something and it's just like, all I really need to know is that it's really going to do the thing that you say it's going to do. And so maybe you can uh, leave that, that with uh, a demo or, you know, usually I want hard data that they can never give me in terms of, oh, you have a marketing service. Well, can you tell me the cost per acquired customer for, you know, a population of people who are selling something very similar to what I'm selling? Like, uh, no, we can't. So anyways, I, I, maybe I'm jumping the gun. I'm thinking, hey, demos, data. Uh, but you tell me, what are the best ways to yeah. address and reduce uncertainty? But demos and data are close, right? And so I think I, I love to start start with an idea that many of us may have heard of before, and that is the notion of freemium, right? So take a company like Dropbox, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with. You use storage place for files and so on. When Dropbox came out, they had a great technology, but the challenge is people were scared of it, right? They didn't know whether it would be better than what they'd done already. They were used to doing things a particular way. You know, where is that cloud? Where are my files going to be? If I've worked hours on this Word document, I don't want to lose it. And so they were unwilling to make uh, the change. And so Dropbox could have done a lot of advertising. They could have bought Google search words. But what they did instead is they gave it away for free. And you might be sitting there going, what do you mean? Give it away for free? Any kid who's ever run a, a lemonade stand to the most seasoned business executive knows that giving away something for free is not a way to build a business. Yet Dropbox has built a billion-dollar business giving away things for free. How did they do that? And so what they did is they didn't give away everything for free. They gave away a version for free and then created a premium version and encouraged people to upgrade to it. So in Dropbox case, for example, they gave away two gigabytes or something like that of storage for free. They said, look, sure, there are switching costs. You have your files on your computer. It's going to take time and effort to upload them. But let's at least try to mitigate that monetary cost by making the upfront cost free. So you can mm -hmm. put files on Dropbox until you get to two gigabytes. Once you get to two gigabytes, though, you're faced with a choice. Do I upgrade to the premium version or not? Do I want more space, more features or not? And what's really nice about something like freemium is rather than Dropbox telling you how great it is, just like that marketing service that you were talking to, right? Of course, they're going to mm -hmm. say it's great. No marketing service can say, oh, yeah, you know, well, we're not so great. So you can't really believe them. But in Dropbox's case, you have to believe because you've the one been using it, right? You're the one that's uploaded yeah. all your files to it. And so when they come around and they say, hey, can you throw us a couple bucks to get more space? You say, well, I know it's good, right? I've resolved that uncertainty myself. I've convinced myself. And so there are dozens, uh, if not hundreds of other businesses that have leveraged this notion of freemium, creating a, a free version of a product or service, and then encouraging people to upgrade to the premium. Uh, if you think about Pandora, there's an ad-free version. You think about Skype, there's a premium version. You think about LinkedIn, there's a premium version. And so what all these things have done is they've lowered that upfront cost to allow people to experience whether something's good or not. And then if they like it, they encourage you to upgrade to the freemium. And so you have to figure out the right way to leverage freemium, but I think that's at least one idea to lower that barrier to trial and, and reduce uncertainty. 
Yeah, you know, that, that does make a lot of sense to me. And anyway, I guess you can give people a taste of things like whether you make a good sketch or a model or a prototype or a 3D world so they could put on the headset and, and, and see, oh, that's what you mean. Yes. So that uncertainty diminishes as it becomes more real and a part of something that they've experienced. Yeah, I mean, think about test drives, for example. So I often talk about freemium with clients of mine and you know, I'll talk to somebody who who's an online uh, software as a service company and say, great, freemium, I got it, let's do it. But then I'll talk to somebody that uh, sells offline goods. So maybe they're a fleet management company or uh, maybe they're a doctor, or maybe they're a hospital. And they say, freemium's great, but like mm-hmm. if I'm selling a physical thing, I can't do freemium. The idea of freemium, though, is a lot larger than freemium, right? The idea is just as you said, how can I make it easier for people to experience the offering? So think about something like test drives for cars, right? There's not a free and a premium version. You get to test drive Mm -hmm. a car. It doesn't make the price of the car any cheaper. The amount of money it's going to cost to buy that Acura is still the same. All the test drive does, it allows you to figure out whether the value of it is actually worth paying the money. It allows you to experience some sense of of what it's like, even though it's it's not freemium. And so what that chapter talks all about is how can we lower the upfront costs by uh, using things like test drives or freemium or other ways? How can we lower the back-end costs, making things reversible, free returns in the case of online bonds? Lawyers often say, hey, we only get paid if you win. So again, reducing that uncertainty that it's going to work. Or even things like driving discovery, where you bring the trial to people so they experience it themselves. Even if they don't think they're interested, bring it to them and allow them to see how good it is. Yeah, that's cool. So Jonah, if you could maybe give us an example that, that brings this all together with, or maybe just even a few of the elements together in terms of there's a professional, they're looking to make a change, and they astutely utilized a multiple levers in their appeal and and made magic happen. (laughs) Can you lay one on us? There are many examples in the book that touch on individual aspects of this. I think I'll just, since we were talking about uncertainty, I'll just give one more about uncertainty specifically that that I think is a fun one. And and this is what I'd put under the sort of drive discovery bucket. And that is, you know, sometimes people don't know that they like what you're offering. So sometimes you're trying to get them to do something, but if they don't know you exist or they don't think they'd like you, they're going to be unwilling to change. So if your boss, for example, has never heard of a certain thing or a client's, you know, you're a challenger brand in a space, a client doesn't know you exist, they're going to be unlikely to change their mind. And so I think this can be a great way to solve the problem. There was this guy, his name was Jacek. He's Polish. Uh, He works for Santander Bank. Essentially, he wants to get his boss to buy into customer service, really customer experience. So in the United States, we know all about sort of surprise and delight. You know, we have our best customers. We surprise them. We greet them by name. You check into our hotel. We give you your your own pillow. You call customer service. We know it's you. But it hasn't been applied in banking as much and hadn't made its way to Europe. And so Jacek was sitting there going, look, this could be great in banking. Customers like us, but they don't love us. Sure, we're smiling at them when they walk in the door, but we need to build a deeper connection. And so he tells his boss, look, we got to do this. And his boss says, ah, no thanks. And he says, look, boss, you know, all these people are doing it. And the boss says, no, look, we're banking. We're not hotels. We're not online retailers, people in banking care only about the rates. So Jacek brings in a consultant and he makes presentation after presentation. His boss still isn't convinced. And so he's sitting there going, okay, I can't push my boss. If I tell my boss to do what to do, he's not going to listen. And so he's like, well, how can I help my boss experience 
the value of what I'm offering? How can I put him in the situation and the management team in the situation of what I'm trying to get them to do? And so he ends up doing something slightly different. Rather than having another meeting where he talks about the value of customer experience, he instead collects a bunch of information from his boss and the management team. So he finds out their birthday, their anniversary, how many days they've been with the company, when they're going on trips, and, and so on. And then what he does over the next couple months is he celebrates these things. So if it's someone's anniversary, he sends them a nice note. If it's, you know, their two years of working with the company, they get a wonderful card signed by everyone saying how great it is that they've been with the organization. Someone goes hiking, somebody knits them a hat. Someone's child gets mm-hmm. in a car accident, they raise them money. And so all these things are basically putting the management team in the shoes of what it's like to be part of a customer experience initiative. Then the next time they have a meeting, right, Jassic is sort of, you know, tentative to bring it up, but he says, hey, you know, what do you guys think? And nobody says, hey, I don't think it'll work because they've all been experiencing it, right? They all know what it's like to be cared about as a customer because they've been sitting through it. And that's an example of what I put under uncertainty of driving discovery. Rather than forcing people to come to you and take that test drive, how can you bring the test drive to them? How can you put them in a situation of what you want them to do so they experience the value themselves? They can't help but say yes because they've seen it for themselves and they're the best ones to judge whether they're going to like something or not. Oh, I like that a lot. Thank you. So I assume that they accepted his proposal after all of that. Oh, yeah. There you go. No, it's funny. They not only accepted his proposal, they've promoted him to be you know director of customer experience for there a large go. number of, of banks. And it has lived on not only in that location, but a number of others. He's really helped bring that approach to a, a whole industry that hadn't seen it before. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Jonah, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I think that's it. We covered many of the, the barriers in the, in the book. I think, you know, to me, the main takeaway of the, the book is really start to notice those roadblocks, those obstacles, figure out how to mitigate them. And then those five are at least a place to start for, for some of them. All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Do what you love and love what you do. And I found it quite motivating to remember both that you want to love what you're doing, but also sometimes it takes a little work and you've got to be willing to put that work in to love whatever it is that you're doing. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I'll tell you an example of a recent favorite. They look at the visual similarity between paintings to figure out how novel and how influential certain paintings are and to figure out how correlated those are with the value of paintings. So they do Hmm. things like looking at what someone paints style they paint and how similar or different it is from prior folks to look at what drives value. And so a lot of the research I'm doing at the moment is really natural language or image processing, pulling behavioral insight uh, from textual image-based data. And I, I thought this study was just amazing. Huh. And, and so they found something, I imagine, or otherwise it wouldn't be. <laughs> they did, yeah. They're looking at sort of how novelty or uh, similarities related to value. We actually did something similar in songs where we looked at how similar songs are to their genres. So how similar a given song is to other songs in that genre. We found that songs that are more atypical, that sing about things that are more differentiated from their genre, are more successful. So country songs, not surprisingly, sing a lot about girls and cars, but country songs that sing about different themes than usual end up being higher on the Billboard charts. And how about a favorite book? Oh, it would be a cop-out to say The Catalyst, which is my new one. So I'll say a different favorite book, uh, which is a book called A Matter of Taste. It's all about baby names and how we can use baby names to understand culture. Uh, Hmm. It's an amazing, not only a fun read, but just an interesting lens uh, on the world itself. And how about a favorite tool that you use to be awesome at your job? I would just say research. (laughs) That's a broad Swiss Army knife of a tool. But I would say no particular technology, just research in general, being curious about the world and trying to quantify it. And how about a favorite habit, something you do that helps you be awesome at your job? 
God, I think scheduling is so important. You talked to this a little bit earlier about sort of outsourcing things. To me, it's really about finding time for the big stuff, making sure that you know when something is a pebble and a boulder, not only doing the pebbles first because they're easy, but making sure you make time for the big things. Otherwise, they'll, they'll never get done. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They repeat it back to you often? <laughs> I can't say that that's true. Uh, I would hope uh, that something from one of the books, whether it's word of mouth, only 7% of it's online, or hopefully someday soon, one thing from the new book, The Catalyst. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Oh, so a great place to find me online is my website, just jonaberger.com, J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R. I'm also on LinkedIn and on Twitter at J1Berger. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. You know, I think if I've learned anything from this new book, it's that we are almost oblivious to these barriers. We're blind to these obstacles. And so I think my challenge would be to figure out why something hasn't changed. Whatever it is you want to change, whether it's a person, whether it's an organization, whatever it might be, start looking for those obstacles. Don't be blind to the barriers. Start to see them and if not, ask about them and use that to drive change. Because if we don't understand why change is happening or not, we can't find the root. It's going to be really hard to change minds in action. Well, Jonah, this has been lots of fun. I wish you a bunch of luck with Catalyst and all your adventures. Thanks so much. You know, I really got a kick out of Jonah's take when giving a choice. And I've been reading this book, How to Talk So Little Children Will Listen. <laughs> and, and it talks about giving a choice. And of course, you won't make it this flagrant. But I laughed out loud when I read the sentence. It was sort of like, hey, uh, do you want to gallop to the car like a horse or crawl to the car like a crab? <laughs> it's like you get the idea. In both instances, they're moving toward the car. Now, now, that's pretty transparent, and someone who's older than a toddler is going to catch on to exactly what you're doing. But really often, there are many ways to skin a cat, many ways to achieve the objective and get to the ends that you're going for. So why not go ahead and, and lay out a few of those and, and see which one is, is more palatable and, and let them work on it and, and see how they might modify it a smidge so, so it's a huge win-win. So many great tips from Jonah about uh, reducing the resistance and, and getting where you need to go with your persuasion. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F553. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Celeste Headley. She is talking about how to stay sane and healthy and resist the, the burnout overwork situation that many of us can find ourselves in. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.